Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Kachina Aurora Kitchen Witchery Podcast. Another fabulous episode today uh, with conversational witchcraft with uh, our new friend, Nicholas Pearson. Let me tell you a little bit about the great Nicholas Pearson. He's been involved in all aspects of the mineral kingdom for nearly three decades. He's an award-winning author of seven books, including The Seven Archetypal Stones, Crystals for Karmic Healing, and Crystal Basics, which is such a great book. His writing has appeared in magazines, blogs, and other media around the globe, and he's a popular guest on radio, television, and podcasts, including this one, hooray. Nicholas is among the foremost experts on crystals, combining his background in mineral science with his love of healing, spirituality, and folklore to illustrate how and why crystals can change our lives. Nicholas is also a flower essence therapist and Reiki practitioner and teacher. He has traveled around the world offering classes on a variety of topics and is currently offering a wide variety of classes and events online. Nicholas lives in Orlando, Florida with his partner and photographer extraordinaire. Nicholas, welcome to the show. I'm just feeling a little Broadway, so jazz hands. Uh, (laughs) Jazz hands, which is also, I believe, in sign language is clapping. So either way, this is good, right? Excellent. Right? So hi and welcome, friend. Hello, hello. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm I'm super excited. Uh, first of all, I know like this much, uh, for those of you listening, I'm holding up my fingers as a tiny little bit. I know this much about stones. Like I know the basics, you know, mostly, you know, that's what most witches know, just the basic like rose quartz for love and that kind of thing. That's kind of where my knowledge stops in terms of practical using practical uses of stones. I definitely always have some some stone in my bra, like usually like hematite mm-hmm. or something shoved in there, uh, as you do, as you do. So I'm really excited to talk to you because your work is so different from my work. And like we were saying before we started recording, we've been following each other on social media for a while. And this is the first time we're actually like meeting. So I'm super excited. Um, and I don't know how you found me. How did you find me? Um, you know, we run in the same witchy circles, but the moment I fell in love would have been when you were on Crossroads and Cauldrons. You fell in love with me. Shh, don't tell anyone. Shh. <laughs> I kind of fell in love with you too, because um, you often wear bow ties. Yeah, they're my signature when I'm out in the world. And bow ties are cool, because I love Doctor Who, and Matt Smith wears a bow tie, and he's always like, bow ties are cool. It's very dashing. Not everyone could pull off a bow tie. So need you to know you have a little bit of my heart for that as well. Well, thank you. Crossroads and Cauldrons is such a great show, isn't it? It is. Absolutely. Selena is so wonderful. Um, and it's her fault that I started this podcast. Well, good for her. Right. I mean, darn her. Right. I mean, <laughs> damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Uh, I heard you were recently on her show with some technical difficulties. Yes, we're rescheduling. We're going to record soon. Um, that's on my to-do list to figure out the timeline there. It's been, this this month of September has been just absolutely bananas. And next month looks like it will be equally as bananas for different reasons. And it's all good stuff on my end. I'm really grateful. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a crazy few weeks. B-A-N-I-N-A-S. 
Yes. For sure. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we've all gone from like, hey, I've been doing nothing for a hundred years to all of a sudden I'm doing everything all over again. Like that re-entry into the atmosphere of busyness. Although for those of us that are witches and writers and creative people, lockdowns have been, I don't know if I speak for everyone, but for myself, excuse me, lockdown has was great because I was able to kind of like step out of my busy schedule and work on my creative process. Did you find the same thing? I never got a break. So my day job went into, we'll say, uh, a, a six week period of not being customer facing. But then after that, it was straight back into it. I I'm manage a, a local occult metaphysical bookstore. Mm-hmm. And um, ever, ever since returning from that six weeks, business has been faster, steadier, busier than ever. So there's been no relenting in my calendar with COVID. And then somehow in the midst of the busiest period of sales ever. I also wrote my largest book ever in nine months, um, which I'm editing right now, part of the bananification. <laughs> bananification. <laughs> I, it's banana split, right? Yes. <laughs> and that is what well, we're going to talk about your new project towards the end. Um, and I think that's the one that you're talking about, which I'm really, really excited about. But yeah, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I have to say like, I have been very busy, but in completely different ways right? Like completely different ways. It's interesting to hear you say that your day job is working at a metaphysical shop, um, uh, which obviously does mostly books and that you've been your busiest during this time. Have you noticed from that perspective, I know that I've noticed for sure, um, there's been a resurgence of people looking for what we do and what we teach. You've noticed that for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is with, with the big boom of like witch talk and, you know, the Instagram aesthetic of all things mystical. We've got a lot of people who are just coming into the fold and, you know, the beginning part of the journey is simultaneously the most exciting, but also the most daunting. So it's helping people navigate that, that unknown space, sometimes helping them contend with uh, the baggage they carry around the occult and the, the spiritual. Sometimes it's like, talking them off the ledge of Moldavite that they learned about in TikTok. Yeah. Like Moldavite's <laughs> great, but so is every other rock. So let's, let's talk rocks here. Um, so it's been, it's been a really strange year, a good one, a rewarding one, yeah. um, but a busy one. Do you find that, especially in that environment, that you're often educating what I like to call witchlets, uh, the new mm-hmm. people into the fold, the people that are just discovering witchcraft or just discovering the pagan path. Do you find that you're often educating um, and say, don't, don't listen to what you learned on Witch Talk. Read these books. Yeah, you know, the the youngest generation, I don't just mean in terms of age, but in terms of length of practice, yeah. they're not always readers anymore because we're so used to getting uh, that sort of instant gratification of yeah. media consumption through, through anything but the printed word. Yeah, for sure. Uh, a lot of times it's like guiding people through the experiential path, like, sure, let's, let's use this meme on crystal healing that you found as inspiration, but like, what can we do to teach critical thinking skills when I have a line of 30 people trying to get in the store as soon as they're done because of, you know, capacity limits to, to enable social distancing. So the, the education with such a fast turnaround time has been a challenge. 
And I'm really grateful for the, the slower pace of fall, right before we go into the season of the witch and right before right. holiday starts, there is a little bit more time to like breathe deep with people and have those aha moments to watch light bulbs go off. And I endeavor for those every day anyway. Like if, if I had to reduce everything I did to one word, it would be education. Like the thing I'm most excited about to be on planet earth is to teach, whether that's through writing or a class or an opportunity like this, or even the face-to-face customer service thing. It's always, always been education, whether I've been in the metaphysical field or, or otherwise, I just, I really love to teach and learn. So um, I, I, I regret that the busyness sometimes cuts into the ability to yeah. get everyone into that light bulb moment. And then, you know, you got to work with the tools people have so some people aren't ready for the light bulb moment yet. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, you get them as far as they can go and then you just kind of send them into the world and, and they, they get there or they don't, but we, we do the best we can. What is it about the aspect of imparting knowledge? Because like you said, even in a moment of customer service, you're ringing someone through for a book that they just bought and that's an opportunity. So it's interesting to hear you say, like, if you could boil everything you do down to one word, it would be education. For me, that word is connection, to connect with people on a human level, whether it is uh, through through food, through writing, through the podcast, whatever it is. It's I'm, I'm always searching for human connection and those things that bind us together. Um, and usually that's through kindness and, and friendship, right? Um, but what is it about that moment of light bulb moment? for someone else that sets you on fire? That's a really good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me something like that. I, I think, I think part of it relates back to like looking back at my own journey. I had really meaningful teachers and mentors in both traditional and non-traditional capacities, but the mainstay of what I've learned, spiritually speaking, crystal related has been like trial and error. It's been Mm -hmm. sitting down and figuring shit out on my own and having those my own light bulb moments by doing a lot of hard work you're going to see behind me lots of books yeah this isn't even the whole collection there are stacks and stacks everywhere in the house Uh, the many times I've moved in my young adulthood I had to part with books so this is just the library that has stuck with me I have gone through especially the crystal books which are like two-thirds of my collection um like with a fine tooth comb to, to get to where I'm at. And if I can save someone all of that trouble, if I can coach them to the point of using their own critical thinking skills, rather than relying on the sort of memification of all metaphysical knowledge, like it's great that you want to put blue lace agate on your throat chakra because you need help speaking, but like, is that really the right stone? So how can we approach the work in a way that empowers you? to make your own decisions, to come to your own conclusions without having to rely upon that external source. So a big part of education for me comes from being able to think critically. And I think the, the, the secret behind all of my writing, like if, if you were to ask me like, what is my hidden agenda? It's teaching people to think for themselves. Because if, wouldn't, wouldn't that be great if they did? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and, and I get it. Not everybody wants to, not everybody has the capacity to, we don't all have the, the background knowledge to do that in an effective way. But if, if I can take just the tiniest bit of the knowledge they've got and like get them to that next level, just, just the tiniest bit, what is the next step for me? How can I carry this through instead of like carry X rock to fix Y condition in my life, but really thinking about how did I get to this, this pattern, this scenario, this condition? what is the best ally for me 
rather than just let's put a bluestone on the, the throat chakra and call it a day. Wow, that's really cool because you hear oftentimes people that um, identify as or or define as teacher, and there are people that define as teacher with in the pagan community, without the pagan community, people that are just teachers for a job, um, they will say the thing that is the most rewarding to them is, you know, seeing someone learn. And I think that the truth behind a great teacher is a person who loves to learn. And obviously that's you. So you're over here soaking up all of this knowledge and, and, to impart it on someone else and just for a moment have them have their wheels turn. That's where you get like your greatest fulfillment. You're like, wow, I started that engine, right? You got that person to start thinking. And from there, you hope that they continue to chugga, 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 chugga. It's the great hope. It's the great dream. <laughs> in retail, it might not always happen, but you know, in a class, that sacred container that is the, the, the workshop space, that's like, it's, it's just pure magic. I've been doing this. I've been doing like the, the, the workshop, the teaching seminar kind of format for, oh, I can do this math, like 17 years now, almost, almost 18. How is that even possible? You I started younger than I ought to have. If I'm being totally honest, I started before I really had a clue. I had, I had information, but I don't think I had any wisdom. Um, I was very intuitive and things came through that I couldn't take credit for. That wisdom was not mine. Um, but now, now a lot of that wisdom is hard fought, hard won. And, uh, yeah, I, you, it's, it's just what I love. So here you are in all aspects of your life, being a teacher, holding that space to educate people. And honestly, I, I cannot, I, yes, the, the container of a teaching space or a seminar space, I think is so important and so sacred, especially because those who come to that container are there to learn. They are more receptive. Having a retail uh, situation in my work as well, right? Because I do mm -hmm. fairs and festivals. And right now I'm in the middle of doing a huge Renaissance fair at the at upstate New York. And so I was there last weekend. I have to go there again. Um, and it's part of my my business, you know, to to go and sell infused olive oil and sell books for myself personally in that retail environment. I find that moment of connection mm -hmm. so rewarding because it's unexpected, because that person didn't come in to have that experience. They came in looking to buy olive oil. You know, maybe they came into your shop to buy a stone and what they got was, whoa, this person really saw me. This person really taught me something even in those five minutes. Um, it's so rewarding in all of those spaces because really, Nicholas, it's not the space, it's you. It's what you bring into the space, you know. People gravitate towards that energy and they'll look, I bet you, you are the type of person that gets asked questions when you're in a store, like in the grocery store and people are like, excuse mm -hmm. me, do you know where this is? Because you have that air of knowledge. Am I right? Um, do I do a really good job of wearing an invisibility cloak when I'm in public. <laughs> do you? People, people don't address me. <clears throat> I, uh, I get approached all the time. Uh, you, you wouldn't know it, but I'm really a miserly Capricorn. Um, <laughs> Are you really? I am. I've got a stellium in Capricorn. So I've got this like 
real heavy vibe that comes from that. But um, so yeah, I I use that. I, I mean, my business acumen comes in there. All my other stuff, my, yeah. my BS meter, really great. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but then but then I I wear a different hat when I enter the other kind of space. So so people um, don't did, bother you. I try. Yeah, I did. I did like luxury retail for a long time, and like the whole having to do the the cold sales pitch on people. I did that for so many times. I, I don't like having it inflicted upon me. It's the worst. Um, it's it, the worst. It, it totally is. But I, I, I get it. We, we got to make it work if we are subject to the world, right? Got to pay your bills. Right. Got to pay your bills. right? <clears throat> so, okay. So here you are now on this side, you know, in, in this moment of your life where you are, you are the container for education. You are a lot of people's first introduction to, you know, healing, to craft, to all of these things, because people really gravitate towards crystals and stones, right? I would imagine, I mean, everybody in the world has seen that book that's right behind you, Crystal Basics. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's, you can't go into a Barnes and Noble or a local bookshop without seeing that book being like first thing on the shelf that you see. I mean, let's all just be honest. Um, so, so here you are as this person, How'd you get here? Who educated you? And you, you've referred a couple of times now to your old, your retail past. And uh, I know that you have a mineralist background. Uh That fascinates me. Like, I want to know who you were before you were Nicholas Pearson. Like, who was, who was Nicholas Pearson? Who was working retail and studying? Who's that guy? Tell us about him. It's, it's convoluted. The, the short version is I've always liked rocks. So when I was a little kid, I was that little kid who picked up rocks. They weren't fancy mineral specimens. Yeah. I just stuffed my pockets with rocks. If I had a container, it was full of rocks. And they could be from exotic, serene, magical places like the, the, the beach or a family vacation to the mountains or even more exotic and magical places like the grocery store parking lot. The driveway. Yes. yes. Oh my gosh. My grandparents had a neighbor with a gravel driveway and it was like a gold mine after it rained and everything was shiny and yeah. I so much trouble. So my, my grandfather um, saw this behavior over and over again and he decided I would get my very first piece of quartz. So he gave me a piece of quartz that now I know is from Hot Springs, Arkansas. You know, I know the geology of the region. I can identify the inclusions in it. But, but back then it was like, a piece of magic. My father gave me, my grandfather gave me like this, this magical jewel that, that came from the world of, of fantasy. And at, at this point in my life, I was maybe eight years old. Um, it, it changed things for me. I always loved learning. My dad grew up super Catholic, like really, really Catholic. So I wasn't brought up anything at all. Like we, we overcompensated in the other direction. And when other families went to church on weekends, we would go to the library every other weekend. Uh, until I started reading books too quickly, and then How it was every weekend. How cool is that? Yeah. How uh, cool for... is the the library was your church? That's yeah. freaking great. It I'm was. sorry, that's fantastic. So you know, one week it might be, you know, obviously starting with things in in my wheelhouse as a kid. You know, reading about science or nature, but I also loved fairy tales and folklore and world religion and mythology. Oh gosh, I could, I could tear through books of myths from different cultures faster than anything else. And it really didn't take me too long to recognize that um, 
the lexicon of myth and folklore was describing the same phenomena as the lexicon of science. And they were two different lenses of looking at the world. And so it was very easy for me as a, even an adolescent to go out, see the setting sun and see Kepera, the, the uh, Egyptian sun god rolling the sphere of the sun across the sky, even knowing that it was a great big ball of flaming gas. Like I could hold those two principles in my mind with no, no internal conflict. And it just opened this space for science to be a really magical thing for me and for magic to be a really scientific thing for me. And over the years, I got a chance to have a really rigorous academic upbringing. Um, I attended uh, school, enrolled in what's called the International Baccalaureate Program, which aims to make like the new generation of Renaissance people. So I was studying hard science and philosophy and all the normal things you study too. And uh, I've been involved in music since I was very young. Um, but when I got the chance to go away to college, by that point, I'd, I'd already developed a love. I'd had a collection of, of rocks and minerals for a while. I found the world of crystal healing is like the perfect intersection, the place where I could study the folklore of things, but also there was a science I could learn about. Even if I didn't know how they related, I knew somehow it mattered to know them both. And I went away to, to university to study music as a music ed major. And the story goes that I was randomly assigned to work at the Gillespie Museum, which was an earth science museum on campus that I had no idea existed. I registered late. It was my second choice school. They offered me double the scholarship money as my first choice school. So it was like, well, obviously we're going to do this because I can't afford my first choice right. school. Right. Um, turns out I couldn't afford my second choice school either, but that, that realization would come later. Right. Um, and, you know, the Capricorn brain kicks in like three or four weeks into school. I'm like, if I show up to work, they'll pay me. So I need to figure out what this place is and where it's located. So I go to an upperclassman, a trumpet player, because they have all the answers, or so they think. And uh, I play the French horn, by the way. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so uh, I'm like, Chris, where is this Gillespie Museum? And he just gives me the funniest look. He's like, the Gillespie? Why on earth would you want to go to the Rock Museum? We have a what? A rock. Tell me more. I need There's all the details. A rock Museum? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so after rehearsal, I marched my way down. It's closed. It's after business hours. So um, after tirelessly knocking and getting no response, I go home. I write a nice formal letter apologizing for my tardiness, but can I still accept the job? And then I leave a voicemail because I'm really thorough. Um, I got there five minutes before they opened the following day and just like begged and pleaded. Like, I'll work for free. <laughs> Within just let a me get a movie with the rocks. Yeah. Uh, within a couple weeks, they gave me almost unrestricted access to the collection because I came in with some working mineral knowledge yeah. and I could at least identify rocks. Uh, they, they let me have not quite free reign, but I got to do things student staff didn't typically get to do. I was working with like sorting through things that had been lost to the sands of time from a previous remodel. Um, uh, whenever we got things that were part of like the acquisition process or donation process, I would be like first line sorting with the associate director, um, keep for display, keep for research, sell, give away, trade. So we had to like sort all these things and decide what was valuable, what wasn't, which meant being able to identify not only what a rock or mineral is, if it has no label, but where it came from, approximately when it might've been mined. So we're like cross-referencing wow. with other things there. And I tell you in, in my first year of college, I learned so much mineral science without having to open a book. Um, I did, um, and I enjoyed it so much that I realized studying music didn't bring me any special kind of joy. In fact, 
the thought of what my degree was preparing me for, which was to teach high school band for the rest of my life, makes me want to walk into traffic blindfolded on a busy day. Um, better chances of survival, I think. Yeah. Uh, yes. I was just like, you know, I love making music. I don't love the idea of what this is doing for my life. So I, I made a switch. I, the curator of the museum uh, offered to take me under his wing and do independent study. So I had to formally declare the closest science major I could because my, my school had no geology program. We taught geology 101. That was it. So I, I switched my major to environmental science with an, an informal emphasis on mineral science. And the goal was to do a lot of independent study. Um, I enrolled in the one geology course. I taught the lab, I co-taught the lab. I, I had like special duties during lab to lead everyone on these things, even though I'd never taken a geology course in my life. So like we had we had special things set up to get me additional experience and we we're gonna do independent study for more stuff. And then I ran out of money and school costs a lot of it. it so um, <clears throat> lots of things happened. I, I left school. I was a townie for a couple of years. I almost immigrated to Japan. I worked what? for corporate America for five years. What's a and, townie? Yeah, I, like I moved to a college town. Like it was, it was just a college town. There wasn't much town. And if you lived there, that's outside what you of were. School, You're just a, you townie. Were a townie. So like, <laughs> we, we, I, I became this this dreaded thing of like this person who's just hangs there. out. Yeah, you just, yeah. you just you have the same seat at the diner, and you're always there. Kind of, yeah. yeah that's um, what I consider a townie. This is just like the most fascinating. I absolutely, sidebar, I also went to school for music, music education. Love it. I was going to, my dream was to teach kids to sing, like mm -hmm. that I wanted to, to direct children's choruses. And then I realized I fucking hate kids. And <laughs> And yeah. like, I, I was like, you can only do this one thing. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's nothing else that you could do. Like if you said you went to school for a band and all you could do then is be a high school band teacher for the rest of your life. Like yeah. that's terrifying. Also, I love the French horn. The sound of the French horn makes me, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm so in love with you right now. This, whenever we're listening to music, my husband and I, my husband is a musician as well. He's, um, I mean, he's actually a musician. Like I really don't do music anymore. He's a musician, um, bass, guitar, mandolin, anything stringed. Um, but whenever we're listening to, to music or we're listening to, you know, huge, beautiful composers, you know, when the French horns come on, I, I see gold light and, and cause I'm I have synesthesia. So I see some of mm -hmm. that, uh, gold and, and shimmer and just French horns are amazing. I can't believe you play the French horn. I don't, I've only ever met one other French horn player in my life. She wasn't nearly as awesome as you. Um, so that was, <laughs> that was this, that was my, my musical sidebar, but, um, coming back to that, like you were obviously meant to do this and the the pairing as you put it of of the science and the healing the science and the spiritual i think that's something that not everyone realizes i'm very much into vibrational work mm -hmm. and 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 obviously you are as well cuz you're dealing with reiki and things like that and people don't realize how science proves vibration and then we talk about vibration 
on the spiritual side of things in terms of, you know, what frequency you're, you're vibing at, what frequency, you know, other people are at or the magics that we're doing or whatever. Is there any connection between that and, um, you know, stones, rocks, earth, um, in terms of vibrational healing that you have learned with the science of geology? Yeah. So in my museum days, I would very precociously go out of my way to spend time with rocks I'd never heard of and whose names I could barely pronounce. So it'd be like, Pali Gorskite, I have no idea what you are. Let's let's sit down with you. Metahewatite, I can't spell you. So we got to get to know you. And and at the time, I, I was a really diligent note taker, less so these days. Um, but you had to do everything analog then. So it, it was easy to do. I always had a notebook or a scrap of paper and I'd jot down meditative experience. And uh, for a while that became like holy writ for me. And then I I really started collecting books. Like I have a problem. I don't plan on solving it, but I have a problem. And I would, I would find interesting parallels. There might be two authors who lived on different continents, spoke different languages, uh, maybe even different timeframes. They could not have known what one another said about the same stone or more fascinating to me about stones that belong to the same crystal system or were subject to similar geological processes or had similar compositions. And I started to notice, oh, things that have iron in them are described as fortifying, grounding, strengthening, enlivening, protective, almost universally. When I start to see things that are rich in aluminum, um, we, we tend to see things impacting the mental level and the nervous system. Oh triclinic minerals, the, the group of, of crystals that have the, the least symmetry. Um, they seem so evolutionary, so adaptable. They seem like so able to help us through transitional periods. Even though people weren't necessarily looking at those things, they were sitting down and having an experience or observing what was happening with their clients or channeling information about them. And so I started to look at the connections. And so it's like my job became the 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 aggregator of data and providing the meta-analysis of it. I filtered that, of course, through personal experience. You know, like there's something about rhodonite that I love that colors my interpretation of it because I'm a human being and we all have a bias. That's that's just going to happen. Right. Um, and I, I own that. But looking at that kind of meta-level, looking at the, the bigger picture helps me recognize that even though we're all human beings having, you know, what we call UPG, unverified personal gnosis, or having these subjective relative experiences in, in a relative world, um, there's something deeper. There is something absolute and objective that maybe we only get a kernel of in our personal experience, but it's there and it's coloring it. So my job, I, I feel like my mission when it comes to uh, getting the message of, of what rocks and minerals do out there is, is getting us rooted in an understanding that there are models that are scientific or at least science-like. I, I get that the art of crystal healing is an art, it is a pseudoscience. I, I believe that physics can explain the pathways and principles at work, but we haven't studied it. We haven't proven it in a lab. It hasn't gone through the process of you know, peer review. Um, that can happen. I'm, I'm quite confident that it someone should. could do this. Yeah, it should. Um, but it, it hasn't happened yet. So as much as I love that, I still remember that the bottom line is we're having a spiritual, subjective, unverified, personal, relative experience. But it's just interesting how those tend to line up. The more data you get, the more connections there seem to be. So um, that was that was like my big aha in my 
Mineral Museum days, and I happened to stumble upon the writings of a, a couple of authors who had science backgrounds and, and wanted to include some of that. Michael Ginger was a uh, German author who was formerly a geologist. I mean, that was his principal training, and uh, it was it was not by design that he defected to the world of crystal healing. It was just something that happened really organically for him. If you read his works, you see that he started to notice that. Um, people's personalities kind of correlated with the seven crystal systems, the seven geometric groupings. And he, he has these really clear examples of it in, in his professional and personal life. And that started to get him to think about other things. And you know, eventually it led to a whole school of thought. Um, but where I'm at today is influenced by not just the people whose works I've read, but the experience I've had from my own, my own you know, yeah. personal healing and transformation. And then I'm, I'm lucky that as a precocious teenager, a precocious 20 something, I could reach out to my favorite authors and like have conversations with them in some cases and get to know them and eventually study with a couple of them. Well, they don't have like a formal training in crystal healing. I've gotten to take some really great workshops that have gotten the wheels turning. Um, and what I do now is informed by a heck of a lot. I, yeah. I like to be as grounded and practical as I can in my approach. Um, but I want to make sure that there is space for all the woo people want to have. We just have to recognize we can't always measure woo. So I want to focus on what can we measure and what can we do with that measurement? Why, why is that important? I, I also, you know, it's very interesting to me because you're talking about how you're in your, you know, in those early days and working at the museum and starting that process, it sounds like you already were very comfortable in your pagan path. Mm -hmm. At what point did you find that path? Because it sort of sounds like they all happen at the same time. You know, was there ever a moment where you said, oh, this is the, the this is the spiritual path I'm on? How did you go from sort of this you know, uh, I don't want to use the word atheist, that doesn't sound right, but, um, you know, non-spiritual mm -hmm. upbringing, where the spirit, the, the, the thing was knowledge, not spirituality. Um, right. And I totally identify with your dad, because I grew up in this very strict Italian Catholic family. <laughs> uh, like, we don't even want to get into it. Uh, and, and that's why I'm a witch. Um, but, but, you know, at what point did you go, oh, no, wait, I want to add spirit and and uh, craft uh in because you obviously didn't get that from family you know where did mm -hmm. that come from and did that happen before or during this process of learning about geology so my my spiritual kind of journey i would say was contemporaneous with like my falling in love with folklore and mythology so before i think if I'm being totally frank, I, I was pagan before I knew what pagan was because yeah. it, it just made sense to me that if all of these people who lived across the history of the earth all had different ideas of how things worked and what we should call the divine, um, they, not everybody can be right or yes. everybody has to be right. It's, yes. it's, it's either or. No one is right or everybody is right. I couldn't fathom that only one person got it right and everybody else was going to hell. Like that yes. just did not make sense to my Yes. Brain. So, you know, I could, I could go out and salute the, the sun god of Kepera, or I could, you know, talk to my, my, my local consciousness of the land before I knew that was a thing people did. And the world was a very magical, mystical place for me. I, 
didn't have a very strong social circle when I was in my, my late childhood, early adolescence. Um, so like nature was my friend and that was something that kind of paved the way. And so finding that there were whole books devoted to earth-based spirituality, that there were plural views of the divine, that there were these concepts where you could hold space for everybody being right and delving into this idea that there are mysteries. And as a human being, I can be initiated into the mysteries. I can have an experience of them. I can touch them, but I can't put them into words. That just felt really comfortable to me. And the sort of ineffability of the cosmos is something that I think I took for granted in the beginning Mm. because I just assumed human beings felt this way. And Mm. a lot of us carry too much baggage to feel that way at first. We got to do a lot of undoing. Um, You know, my, my father maintained his personal beliefs regardless, even though he might've fallen out of practice, but he held space for me to develop my own ideas. So long as my own ideas didn't involve like, you know, animal sacrifice, we were great. We took a family vacation to um, New Orleans one summer in my teens. And, uh, you know, he and I went on a walking tour of the cemeteries and visited the Voodoo Museum. And he had no problem with me buying books about voodoo and witchcraft and buying supplies for them because I don't know if he just thought it was harmless or if he knew that I had a good enough head on my shoulders that I wasn't going to do something, we'll say bad, even though I don't think that's that's really the right word here. So I, I was lucky in that regards. Uh, and... I, I just took that time to explore. When I was in high school, I mean, I, I used all of my pocket money to buy witchcraft books and crystals and, and crystal books when I could yeah. find them. They were even rarer yeah. at that point. Uh, and that's just, it was like the secret thing I did. I stayed up late at night to read books by Scott Cunningham and Silver Ravenwolf yes. and yes. The you know, all this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, I would I would go out. I, I grew up in South Florida, like right along the St. Lucie River. So uh, the mangrove marshes, the swamps, the estuaries, that intertidal zone that's very, very marshy. Like that is, if I close my eyes and I want to picture what magic looks like, it is going out at the changing of the tides and watching what is dry land becoming filled with water amidst the prop roots of the mangroves, listening to the sounds of nature and feeling that that buzz, that that tingle in the air that comes with the that liminal space. The power and, of earth. Yeah. And being able to see her, <clears throat> you know, we were talking about tides coming in and out. It, it feels like her breath, right? You yeah. feel like she's, you're actually experiencing mother earth breathing because it's in and out and it's slow and it's rhythmic and it's so meditative and it's so connective to this amazing planet that we live on. It's really refreshing and beautiful to hear you talk about your path as well as your practice, right? Because I think those things are different. We all walk, walk our own path and then we all have our own practice and they're all a little bit different. Um, but I love hearing you talk about your path and your practice because when you talk about your path, everything is rooted. Everything is earth-based. Everything is um, tangible and it feels so, um, it, it just so, so solid and real. Um, and, and then your, your practice being crystals and crystal healing mm-hmm. and the geology and, and, and the science behind it, it is so 
rich and deep and uh, and rooted. And so often we think of magics or witchcraft as uh, occultism and it's mm-hmm. in this stratosphere um mm-hmm. and it's you know uh headspace based for me you know and i i'm very obviously I, i'm italian i talk with my hands but there's there's everything that's above right and for what like for what i do as a kitchen witch everything is earth-based everything is about food and what comes out of the earth and seasonal and that sort of thing so it is also very grounding it's so nice to hear someone else talking about talking about their path and their practice in that way. Um, I have another question that just popped into my head as you were talking. You had mentioned that you changed your major from music education to environmental science because it was the closest thing to geology that you could do. So that made me think about crystals and rocks and harvesting of these items. And can you speak a little bit about, um, how that is affecting, if at all, things like climate change? Um, you know, how do you make sure that you're not getting things that aren't um, ethically sourced in terms of your stones and things like that? Can you speak to that a little bit? Because that's something that really means something to me. Yeah. So the bottom line, like I'll, I'll start with the Reader's Digest version <laughs> and it reads like this. Everything is complicated. Everything on planet Earth is complicated. And unless you or someone you know and trust has gone out to hand source something with minimal impact uh, and done the work themselves and left behind the smallest imprint possible, there's no way to know the story of most things that you find in your average metaphysical store. And it is impractical for most of us to go mining our own rocks. So there's always going to be some sort of footprint left behind. There's a carbon footprint from... Uh, sending things through the mail. There's a carbon footprint to putting things on into containers on freight trains and planes and ships to ship them around the world to, to get through distribution. There is definitely an environmental impact that comes from mining and extraction. Although to be frank, the kinds of things we use in our metaphysical practice are not the kinds of things that tend to produce the biggest environmental hazards. Uh, Many of them are actually byproducts of other things, and it is through the sale of these what we call gang minerals um, that that the indigenous people, the people who who there who are there doing doing the labor, are earning extra cash. Um, In the last few years, there's definitely been kind of a a shift in the dynamic of of that, where you've got you know mines devoted just to rose quartz in Madagascar because that is the most profitable thing to mine now. Um, that right. wasn't always the case. Like right. you got the rose quartz out of the way to get to something else. Uh, so, you know, as, as that changes, it, it complicates things sometimes for the good, sometimes not so much. Um, and the, you know, the, the truth here is that um, I would love to say that we can with absolute certainty always find crystals that are ethically sourced, but that may not always be the case. There are ways around this. Um, buy from boutique mining industries, boutique gems, um, people who are doing small collectives and co-ops of of mining, faceting, uh, silversmithing. Uh, We can work with certain kinds of communities that are doing the work. Like one of my favorite things on earth currently is Zambian citrine. I'm starting at a jumbo one across the room, but I don't want to run off camera to grab it. Uh, And currently the people bringing it to North America, like the, the one guy who's brokered a deal with the US government and the government of Zambia to bring it in goes out of his way to ensure that not only 
Um, does he have the paperwork showing people got paid, but that they got paid fair wages and they're wow. working in safe conditions. And that is, a, uh, that is a, a requirement for him to bring it into this country. Ethiopian opals undergo similar kinds of documentation. So wow. there are certain kinds of things we can buy with relative certainty. Um, also buying things that are old stock, old collections. There's, there's no new mining. There's no new labor involved in that. Um, certain materials are conflict materials and that we, we often think of things like blood diamonds, but um, cobalt, niobium, tantalum, uh, metals and, and, and precious substances that are used in our technology, they are some of the worst human rights violations that are out there. And, uh, you know, here we have like a whole, a whole movement of people crusading against crystal healing because it's so unethical and it hurts the environment and it's so bad and socially irresponsible. And they're making these posts on their cell phones that are made out of things that are collected with child slave labor. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of other things you could be protesting that, uh, right. you and, know, yeah. And that, that doesn't mean that the harm crystals can potentially do is negated. It, it just means that it's not the only problem. And so right. if we're going to, if we're going to talk about the issues of mining and extraction, we have to talk about the issues of mining and extraction as a whole and not the tiniest fraction of things that get mined. And I, then how does this, this affect the energy of these crystals? You know, you don't know where they came from. You know, I, if I buy crystals, and again, in the beginning I said I know very little uh, mm -hmm. about crystals. I, I do my little bits as, uh, as a kitchen witch does, you know. Um, I have all my my crystals out on my, on my altar, but sometimes I've had them for so long. I forgot what they are or forgot what they're for. You know, if I go into a shop, I'm like, Oh, this one feels good. I'm just going to buy this. Um, but how does, and I always, I always, um, you know, cleanse everything before mm -hmm. it, it, you know, becomes part of my altar or becomes something I carry with me. But how does these, the mining processes, um, affect the the energies and the vibrations of these crystals for the work um, an example being you know as a kitchen witch I try my hardest to only buy I'm, I'm not a vegan um, so I do eat meat products and I do try my hardest and I tell everybody if you want to still eat meat make sure you're doing it consciously you know buy the the local raised meat before you go to your supermarket uh you know try to find something that says ethically sourced try to find something that says humanely raised if you're going to buy meat do it mindfully because the energy of how the animal was taken how it was raised how it was cared for how it was taken out of this world is it is as important as you know the nutrition that it's providing so can you speak a little bit to that in terms of where the crystals are coming from and how that affects their use in magic working? Yeah. So again, the the short version is it's complicated. You know, on a on a very metaphysical level, just looking at like spiritual hygiene, psychic hygiene. Of course, we we cleanse tools. Um, when it comes to crystals, and like the fundamental things that crystal lattices do mm -hmm. is they have memory. They, they retain the tiniest imprint of what their electromagnetic environment is. Mm -hmm. So if they can do this on the electromagnetic scale, they're doing it on the things we can't measure yet. So yeah. I always kind of refer back to the physics of energy as a model for how subtle energy that we don't measure yet, not, not objectively and quantitatively at least, um, <clears throat> uh, is, is also affected. Um, so we definitely should do that with the tool no matter what, whether it's a crystal or uh, 
beautiful piece of jewelry or you know a wooden spoon we're going to use for our kitchen which we right we want to cleanse the tool because we want to make it sacred and we want it to become an extension of us but i also think that and i don't want to get too too philosophical about this but there there is a karma to all things right I mean, karma is the law of cause and effect so yes. if if i'm working with a tool who's maybe it's it's karmic journey to me is not a pleasant positive uplifting one i suppose one could say that i'm i'm responsible for the karma of what comes next and that falls on my shoulders since i'm the consumer who invested the money that is upholding that end of the spectrum to get it from from origin point to where i'm at wow. so i guess if i wanted to be really really woo about that i better hope i'm doing good with that um and and if if the the metaphysical part is not enough to satisfy me, which it isn't, because that's all well and good. My intentions can be great, but the truth is that I still bought the rock, right? Right. So I need to be using my platform to offset that. I need to be educating people to offset that. And that's why, again, it comes back down to education. What can we do? How can we be empowered to make things better? And with the market being what it is, with capitalism and consumerism and um you know, the spiritual materialism being what they are, we as consumers are the ones who dictate the market. And we just need more people who want to consume consciously, who want to demand better, who want to expect better, who want transparent labeling. Even, even working at the, the, the retail level and I get to help with like sourcing and buying and that kind of stuff, distributors don't have all the answers. Wholesale vendors don't have all the answers because it just hasn't been the market standard because the woo-woo community did not care. The Rockhound community loves provenance because it tells us so much. It enriches the experience. If if I know that something comes from a country whose mining practices include a lot of human rights violations, I'm personally less inclined to buy uh, something if I can't if I can't know how it got to me. Um, if I can buy something that came from the U.S. and it's a historic piece from an old collection, I can probably guess what mining conditions might have looked like relative to a developing nation where where things are less heavily regulated and are less proactive. So um, it is our responsibility to not only take care of the spiritual side of that with the good psychic hygiene, but I think it's, it's using the tools in a way that is meaningful and using the platform we build around those tools to sh try to shift the tide. So, um, so I really appreciate you asking this question and talking about the ethics and the implications of mining and extraction because it is complicated and talking about it alone doesn't fix it, but I don't think enough people are thinking about it yet. And it is super complicated. Yeah. There's no single right answer unless you are the one extracting the stone yourself. And it, it's, it's like you said, it's complicated. It's sort of a loaded question as well. You know, and we, we get this when we talk about kitchen witchery and talk about food magic and yeah. for, for, like you said, the woo woo community, most people aren't thinking about it. In recent years, people have started thinking about things like, where the fuck is my food coming from? You know, mm -hmm. you're getting documentaries on Netflix that are talking about where food is coming from. And so people are starting to wake up to that. I think through COVID, and and I can only really speak about, about my industry, but, you know, through COVID, people have gotten very concerned about where's their food coming from, you know, buying locally, you know, being much more concerned with all of the, the things that were going on still ongoing in, in meat plants and milk plants and all the crazy crap that's going on with Nabisco right now. You know, you know, we always say in Kitchen Witchery, you want to, uh, you know, 
you're putting food into your body, you want it to be as close to the earth as possible. No, I'm saying if you love your Oreos, have your Oreos. But maybe you want to think about where they came from and what ingredients are being used in that and who's making them and you know what are the conditions that that person is working in. Because as you said, oh, you used a great term, uh, karmic, what did you say, karmic, um, uh, something about the karma, and it was just brilliant. Um, and I, I, forgot, I forgot the term you used. Um, mm. But that's true because it carries all of that, you know. Um, and the quality of an item, especially when we're talking about something that comes out of the earth, it really makes it, it makes a difference um, in the magical workings that you're going to do and to be aware of it. And I think if people are aware, then they start to care. So if us having this conversation, if one person goes to buy a crystal somewhere and goes, oh, hang on a second, where did this come from? Oh, hang on a second, let me think about all of these things. Um, and, and at the very least, find gratitude for the fact that this was mined we don't think there's a disconnect between what we purchase and where things come from in our culture, in our society. I had somebody ask me if I could just add a couple of pages to my book. Oh, well, we want to get a couple of, can we just add a couple of pages? I'm like, do you understand how books are made? Like, that's, that's not how it works. Like, I can't just throw pages in a book for you. That's not how, how things are manufactured. People don't understand where things come mm. from. And I think having this conversation with you, Nicholas, people are going to start thinking about where do their crystals come from? Where do their jewelry come from? If they're wearing a pendant that's made of crystals, I have a, a chakra pendant that I wear all the time. Where did that come from? How did those stones get there? Who put that together? If I don't know the artist, I think it's really really important. Um, and sometimes it is just putting, turning that light bulb on, right? That light bulb yeah. moment. Um, on that note, we're going to take a quick little break. Um, I feel like we could just talk forever, but let's take a break. So let's hear from our Fabu sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Nicholas Pearson. Guys, I have just got to tell you about the Robin's Nest. If you're unfamiliar with the Robin's Nest, let me tell you a little bit about one of my favorite shops. This is a full-service premier metaphysical shop here in New England. They offer everything from gifts to custom-made crafted potions and wares, magical and ritual items, divination materials, candles, crystals, uh, spiritually designed clothing, uh, ritual wear, books, incense, tarot, oracle decks, and most of all, more importantly, they offer friendship, creativity, and community. This shop is owned by one of my favorite people in the world, Robbie Packard, um, and she is a high priestess. She is a th helping foster a thriving pagan community with kindness and compassion. She is just the most amazing person, and her shop and everything in it reflects her love of community and craft. You will not find a more welcoming space to learn, to grow in your spiritual practice. Everything the Robin's Nest does is within intention of love and bringing community together. Although the shop is located in Bellingham, Massachusetts, you can find them online at therobinsnestma.com. That's therobinsnestma.com. 
Com. They're offering tons of online rituals, uh, workshops, classes, tons of stuff to get you involved, to broaden your mind and help you on your spiritual journey. Uh, check them out, therobinsnestma.com. You will not be sorry that you did. You guys know I'm a huge music fan. Uh, we talk about music so much on the podcast and how it has influenced my spiritual path and my spiritual working. One of these really influential musicians for me is the amazing pixie, mermaid, witch, human being. She's just amazing. S.J. Tucker. Um, S.J. Tucker is a lyricist, a vocalist, a uh, amazing musician, composer, writing and singing, performing pagan folk music uh, that just transcends everything. I mean, you feel connected to spirit. You feel connected to self. Her music is incredible for meditation, for ritual, for sitting quietly and journaling, for celebrating, for dancing, for drum circles, whatever it is you need. There is an SJ Tucker song that will warm your heart and fill your soul. You can find SJ Tucker's music at sjtucker.com. You can become one of her followers on Patreon at patreon.com slash sjtuckermusic. You can also listen to all of her music for free. Yeah, for free. And download what you like for the price of your choice. And order CDs and books directly at music.sjtucker.com. And if you'd rather have a more interactive experience with the music, she is doing tons and tons of online shows at a musician-run independent platform called onlineconcertthing.com. That's onlineconcertthing, all one word, dot com. Please, please check out SJ Tucker. Her music will not disappoint you. It will lift you up and fill your heart. SJTucker.com. And we are back with the amazing Nicholas Pearson. This has been a really cool conversation. I'm really enjoying getting to, I'm, I'm learning so much from you, Nicholas. I'm, I'm just blown away. This is unlike any conversation I've yet had on this podcast. So, uh, so super fun. So we've been talking about uh, crystals, minerals in your journey. Obviously, you know everything in the world there is to know about rocks. Let's just... Let's just say that's that's the truth, right? Um, so what what is at this moment? Because I don't know if you're like me, you go through phases of of your magic of, of your workings, and I tend to like get obsessed with one thing uh, and just focus on that for a little while. Or like I said, I'm very seasonal, and I do a lot of work with you know like right now I'm all about potatoes, right? Because I need grounding, and uh, it's tis the season. I know you're in Florida, I'm in New England, I'm I'm right up in New Hampshire, so. Finally, it's fall here. Um, and so I'm thinking root vegetables and all of those things. And I'm focusing my my practices on that. Is there a stone and a, a mineral, something right now that you're kind of obsessed with? Always, always. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been on a really big citrine kick for a while now. I know I mentioned the Zambian citrine. Um, I went to a trade show back in May and I had an impulse buy 
It was not a small purchase, but I had an impulse buy. And there was this delayed gratification because um, the vendor offered to take it back and uh, do some touch-up work on it, do some like cleaning by hand to prep the specimen for me. And my boss went back to the trade show the next day, but never went back to pick it up. This guy comes to our store and makes house calls. So we weren't worried. I mean, he had other stuff that she she got like specially taken care of. Um, but it was like months before I finally got this thing in my hot little hands after committing to spend a not small amount of money on it, <laughs> which of course I justified because of how ethically sourced it was. Uh, yeah, um, of course. And right. you had to have it. I, it's an investment, not only in my well-being, but in, in the enrichment of my students, right? It, it's, uh, it's, your, it's your business. Yeah, it's, totally. It's a business expense. It's part of your work. So I, I finally took it home in like mid to late July, mm. months later. And wow. I've been, I've been like off and on on this citrine kick since then. And uh, it's kind of culminating in a workshop I've got coming up soon. I do like this monthly masterclass series on, on rocks where I pick a single stone. So I call them a monolith class because one rock monolith. I love it. And this month we're doing citrine. So I've been kind of doing what we'll say is more passive internal work, trying to keep my head out of it, just allow the work to be the, the work, mostly because I don't have enough space in my head these days <laughs> to really do much else with everything else I've got going on. Um, and and that's that's kind of been the, the like longer arc of what I've been working with. There are a couple things though that just kind of keep coming up for me. One of them is granite. It's mm. not a glamorous rock, um, but it is great. I, I wear like a bracelet, you know, like a little power bead bracelets you see. I mean, I wear one of those made out of Kurama granite, which is granite from Mount Kudama where the system of Reiki was incepted um, almost a hundred years ago now, 99 years and some change. So that's, uh, that's something I do a lot of work with. I've got granite from lots of other places, but that's the special one for me. So tell and, us about, tell us a little bit about the citrine. What kind of workings are you doing with the citrine right now? Why, why is the citrine calling to you so much? And why is the granite calling to you so much right now? So I think most of the metaphysical world, whether that is the witchy occult or the healy feelies, um, would probably kind of pigeonhole citrine as being the stone of abundance or wealth or success. And all of those things are true, but they are not the mechanism at play. They are the end result of the mechanism. They're actually like the side effect. That's not what citrine is going for. So citrine's much deeper mission for us is kind of twofold. The first, the first arm of it is about release. So the energy of citrine collects around the places where there's the greatest amount of tension in our lives to unwind the tension that holds old patterns in place, which strengthens our ability to let go. So in, in gemstone therapy, which is like a highly specialized branch of crystal healing that uses only gem quality tools, um, we use this as the, one of the principal stones for the uh, eliminatory system or any, any function of elimination, not only in the body, but therefore in the mind and spirit as well. Um, and what happens when we let go, when we release, when we get rid of what doesn't serve us, we create space to be filled, right? So we see the side effect of that is people start to associate citrine with what's coming in, even though that's passive, that's not what it's doing. It's like when you, um, when, when you wanna suck a beverage through a straw, it's not that you are drawing a, 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 you're not literally pulling the liquid through, you're creating a vacuum in your mouth and that empty space 
has to equalize the pressure somewhere. So your beverage comes through. What um, a crazy, <clears throat> awesome analogy, you know, and, right. and again, I, I, I would not have known <clears throat> that specifically about citrine and citrine is definitely one of the things that I carry. I have a bracelet. I have this really beautiful chunk of citrine. Um, and sometimes I just, you know, again, when I feel called, so I don't hanging out with my mother, I'll put that <laughs> in my pocket. Um, and, and it's interesting that you say that because there's a space where you need to let go of old patterns. Um, and I never really put those things together. It's just a matter of, oh, this feels like the right thing I should put in my pocket right now. Um, and yeah, you, you have to let things go. And today, as we're recording this is, um, Mavon, it's the, the mm-hmm. equinox and it is the time of harvest, but you cannot harvest if you don't let go and release and create space for that, which we do, you know, in the winter time and, and in the springtime, and we let things go so that we can create this space. That's really cool. That's really cool. And again, I would guess most people don't know about that. Um, so that's something that you're really working with right now. Is that letting go or the, the filling up? I mean, both, you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Um, nature abhors a vacuum. So if we, if we work on one end of that, we automatically get the other. Um, the, the kind of unwinding of tension is something we all need as well. Hell yes. Um, as a, as a creative person who also works a day job and then tries to cram like six or seven other day jobs worth of work into all my other spare time. Um, I, I create a lot of tension. And yeah. so Citrine has always been a really good one for me in, in that, in that space of, of letting go and receiving there's also this energy of like being able to process mm. things as they come and go being discerning about what we keep and what we don't and that definitely correlates to like some of the functions of the digestive system so um i've i've had some long-standing gi issues i finally got some answers it's been a part of what has made this year very strange for me has been going through the medical side of that and sure. being a person as a public figure in the wellness space feeling like you're body doesn't want to be well is yeah. a really strange thing to reconcile. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's another reason I've really done a lot of work with citrine, not because I think magically carrying a piece is going to fix all of my tummy issues, right? but it has definitely helped me understand the rhythm and timing of my GI tract of being able to understand the rhythm and timing of the, the diet of my emotions and the correlation there. Um, part of what I've got is really exacerbated by stress. So unwinding tension in one place helps with all other areas of life. And that's been a a really big thing for me. And I think the the metaphor of digestion is as being able to select the nutrients, the the ingredients we want to keep and release or reject the the waste products that don't serve us. Citrine's going to balance. And and again, we, we have to be willing to release or, you know, what happens to your body if you have no elimination of bad things, bad, things very happen. bad things, very bad. Yeah. things. And at the same time, if you're only mm. eliminating also, Correct. also bad, right. I, I think that idea of, um, the, the rhythm mm-hmm. of digestion, the rhythm of, uh, release and take and release and take is so important as well. Um, that you mentioned, uh, both physically as well as uh, spiritually, mentally. And when you say that, I think to myself, 
diet digestion, it's not just the food that we eat, but it is also the environment that we live in. It's the news we take in. It's the conversations we have. It's the books we read. And right now in the world, we are being bombarded with shit that does not serve, with things that are full of anger and fear and worry and the, the languishing in just trying to get through the, the COVID pandemic, um, I can't imagine what it is like for you down in Florida. Oh, yeah. I, 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 no wonder your stomach is in knots. I mean, I'm in knots <laughs> for you. Like, ugh, uh, could just move here. New Hampshire's great. We'd love to have you. Um, no, it's, it's, I have a couple of friends that live down there and it's really a hard space to be in. So how, how do you think that the workings that you're doing or are needed because of what's going on in the world. You know, that, that famous occult axiom, as above, so below, as within, so without, as the universe, so the soul. It's, I am, I am unsurprised to see the parallels between the micro and the macrocosms here. Um, I think as someone who's, whose mission is to kind of be, be paying attention to, the the rhythm of things to be tuned in to the needs of others whether that's in a literal customer service sense at the day job but also like what are their spiritual needs what are they coming in for the things people tell you aren't always people don't necessarily express what they need with their words alone and also some people don't have the deeper understanding of what it is to ask for which is why they come in saying I need this blue stone for my throat chakra. And what yeah. we really need to do is like, okay, well, let's break it down. It's, it's a confidence issue. So right. it's not really, it's not that you don't have the words, it's that you don't believe in your words. So let's, let's, let's peel back the layers of the onion. Right. So being able to have that ability to digest what is in front of me mm. and to accept what is, uh, we'll say nutritive, meaningful, enriching, and release the rest is... I think a lesson for the planet right now, we, mm. we all, you're being fed a lot. The, the buffet is wide. You don't have to fill your plate with one of everything. You can, you're allowed to, you have, you have agency. I'm not going to stop you, but citrine might be there to remind you like, do you really want second helpings of this Nicholas? Is this it? Right. Really? Right. Right. Are right. you sure? Right. All right then. Right. Or um, here's the thing, you know, is going to give you a stomach ache maybe yeah. skip it and go for seconds on veggies, you know, yeah. like whatever Absolutely. it is. Yeah. We do not need to be consuming all the negativity all the time. And every time you flip on your phone or turn on the TV or open your computer, there's, we're being bombarded by negative, scary, you know, this pe- person hates these people. This person is dying. That thing is happening. You know, everything around us feels like we're kind of imploding. And I feel like as the community, and, and, and especially in your case, a community leader, people look to you and they were like, oh, what stones can I have? And what thing can I do that's going to shield me from all of this mess? You know, the truth <laughs> is it, it starts with you being able to say, A, what do I really need? And B, what should I have and what should I not have? And where can I shield in my regular life? so that my spiritual workings uh, can be fruitful, right? Mm-hmm. I, it, I can't even, I, the people coming into your shop in Florida, they must be beside themselves. I can't, 
even imagine. I can't. I I don't know how. I don't know how you guys are surviving. Stick together. That's how. We, you know, we rise by lifting one another up. Yes. And there's that special camaraderie that happens in any retail space. <laughs> um, but I'm, I think, I think more than anything, communally, the world is, is getting numb again. We've got that compassion fatigue. So yeah. we just kind of put on our blinders and go about it. But at the beginning of all of this, when we were just beginning to open up and in the wake of, I mean, the death of George Floyd and countless others, um, there was this sort of increase in uncertainty. And uncertainty is always a thing for me and my anxiety. And I, there's like the divine beautiful mystery, you can't know this. And then there's the really wretched, what if kind of mystery where you're desperate to know something. And I, I'm, I'm working to train myself to have the, the good kind of surrender to that and to really embrace that. And that's been, that's been an ongoing theme in my life. And I'm sure it is for so many of us these days when things are still uncertain. We're just really certain they're gonna stay uncertain. So we feel better about it. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're 100% right. You know, I'm, recently, I think we were talking about this um, earlier when just saying like, been very busy. Everything's very, very busy. And never not being busy, like even throughout COVID. And I, I'm constantly reminding myself now that I'm tiptoeing back into the world, it's not normal. It looks normal. Everything seems okay at first glance. And then you're like, wait, wait, wait. No, it's not normal. None of this is normal. Take a step back, right? And remember that it is okay to protect yourself and you don't have to go full bore into everything. And there's no going back to things. It's only moving forward and learning, learning ourselves relearning what works and what doesn't work um, and incorporating new things and learning new things about how to keep ourselves emotionally, mentally, physically well uh, and safe. Um, and at the same time, not becoming a complete and total hermit, which I could easily do. I say to my husband all the time, I'm like, I am like two inches away from being a crazy cat lady. I could easily live in my house with my cats and drink coffee and never leave. And I'd be great, you know, which I think is why things like podcasting is so important. Because uh, otherwise, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't see people. And at the same time, my mission in life is connection. So everything feels like it's on its head, right? No matter where you are, it feels like it's on your head. Um, well, okay, so we're almost, we're almost out of time, uh, which kind of sucks, because I'm absolutely fascinated. And really want to learn more about rocks. I guess I'm going to have to read your books in more depth, to be honest. Um, so I know you have some really cool new stuff that you're working on. Uh, and I am very excited about your new project. Can you tell us all about what you're working on now? Absolutely. So um, there's a lot in the works. I don't think I've had this many simultaneous publishing related projects going on at the same time, uh, maybe ever in my career so far. Um, but my next book coming out is called Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden. It's got a subtitle of uh, Plant Spirits and Magical Herbalism. And the title's a bit, a little bit misleading because it is so much more than just about this sort of plant spirit medicine and magical herbalism. It, it kind of spans the way we work with essences and that therapeutic 
almost clinical kind of approach of flower essence therapy to new and exciting ways we can work with flower essences that I don't think are that new. Um, mm -hmm. People have been doing it. There just isn't really a manual. There's not, there's not an instruction guide out there. He's, there wasn't yet. And now there will devoted, be. Right. That was devoted to taking flower essences as not just therapeutic tools, but as materia magica, like how can you incorporate them in spellcraft and magic and ritual? And how can they be more than just this magic little dropper bottle full of liquid with like a discernible amount of almost nothing in them, an right. indiscernible amount of almost right. nothing and turning them into something um, that, is, that, is, that is pure magic. And, uh, you know, we've been talking about attuning to the earth and connection to nature. And, you know, my childhood experiences were unencumbered by personal devices with screens. So um, these days I've got the same screen addiction as everyone else. I got to scroll for the dopamine just like we all do. Yes. And the beautiful thing about flower essences is they're like concentrated nature in a bottle, even though they're super dilute energetically, they are so potent and they give us a quick and easy way to reconnect with the forces of nature. Mm. And I truly, wholeheartedly believe for the most part we should not take shortcuts in our spiritual practice but i also believe certain shortcuts are there and if we do the work with them they they catalyze doing deeper work rather than the quick and easy mm. and flower essences feel so subtle to so many people like this this bottle that is full of mostly water can't really change my life and you're right it can't you can and the flower essence is holding up the mirror to show you the ways that you can do that so if we can do that in a, a more clinical setting, we can obviously do it in a more magical setting. And my, my understanding of essences is simultaneously kind of taking that, you know, more clinical, we wanna be, we wanna be as scientific or science-like as we can be to be taken seriously. But um, the truth is nobody really knows what's in this bottle. Nobody can really tell you why it works. Yes. I, I believe there's a physics that explains a probable model. And maybe one day we'll get there. I mean, there's plenty of science that shows us about the structure of water and information therapies, and there's, there's, there's lots of promise. There are clinical studies that show that flower essences work much better than a placebo and that they do so consistently when used correctly. Yes. And that's, that's a big thing. Not every study looks at them being used correctly. But none of that really matters to me because I'm an animist at heart and everything has consciousness. So I know without a doubt the reason that this... Um, little bottle here of bittersweet nightshade does its job is because the spirit of bittersweet nightshade, the consciousness, the heart, the soul, the overlighting deva or angel, whatever we want to call that force of this plant co-created with someone to make this bottle that is infused with its soul energy, its magic, its power. So naturally when I take this, I'm not just working on whatever electromagnetic information is encoded in those water molecules that's you know, going to influence me in some way. It is the spirit of that plant having a conversation with my spirit well below the conscious level. So if it, if it works on one end, it obviously works in our magic too. I mean, the, the reason we use um, cinnamon in, in, in money magic is not because it is the physical substance that does the work of attracting abundance, but because the spirit of the plant carries this life force, this energy, and it is that animating force in that otherwise inert matter that's doing the magic. Yes. It's the same with flower essences. Yes. 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 That's the basis of all of my <clears throat> kitchen witchery is the energy of the ingredient. And and where does that how does that ingredient hold the energy? And then you by uh understanding 
the ingredient and the energy it holds are able to uh, basically turn on the uh-huh. the energy of that and then thereby take it in. So fa- flower essences are are something I don't really make on my own. Have taken in many uh-huh. cases um, by been prescribed them by naturopathic doctors um, for for all manner of things um, and find absolutely absolutely fascinating because it really does feel like a branch of the same type of magics that I do um, and. I wonder, Nicholas, how working with the flower essences has been so different for you than working with the crystals. Um, is your process in working with them energetically similar or is it so different because they are such different uh, creatures? I think the same the same Nicholas brain is involved in, in the work, no matter what the work is. So they're someone who might be new to flower essences and comfortable with my writings on crystals might open this book and go, oh yeah, I I get it. I see, I see this process. This seems familiar to me. So um, there definitely are a lot of commonalities, but since this feels so outside of my comfort zone to write about, Mm. um, I, I definitely, I, I definitely approach it with more of a beginner's mind, that sort of Zen mind, that, that space of, of, um, being willing to be wrong and 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 get dirty and and mess up and just just be present with that experience in ways that I sometimes don't always hold space for with crystals because I, I take it for granted that I I know what I'm doing or I've seen it all before or you know whatever it might be so I have appreciated the newness of this mm. but at the same time I've I've been using flower essences since I was a teenager uh, when I went away to college I had a dear friend back in my hometown who gave me a, a what would have amounted to a lifetime supply if I'd never moved away uh, of flower essences with the, the Bach flowers. So anytime I would come back home, we'd sit down, we'd have a chat, we'd talk about what's going on in my life. She'd mix me up some dropper bottles to take with me to school. So I always had that, that kind of uh, energy support there. And I mean, it is not an exaggeration to say that flower essences saved my life. Um, they, they definitely got me through some very challenging transitions, um, some real hard stuff in that period in my life. And they, they, they've kind of come and gone ever since. And then some years ago, I started um, reconnecting to the land in central Florida. I, I'd lived in the area for a long time and never really gone out of my way to experience nature here. And I just fell in love with the diversity of wildflowers. And I wanted to get to know like the ethnobotany and whatever lore was associated with them. And one day it just occurred to me, well, I can't find any information on that. So why don't I just make essences with them instead? It was like this idea went off. So yeah. Um, it, it's been, it's been probably seven years of like falling in love with essences little by little again, yeah. uh, some, some 10 years after starting to take them the first time. And I, I can genuinely say that the biggest catalyst in writing this book, other than the world needing more healing, the world needing more, more tools at its disposal was two years ago, uh, doing a retreat with, um, my friends in Glastonbury and, at, at Chalice Well, they make their own line of flower essences. So my, my big treat to myself to commemorate the experience of being there at Chalice Well Gardens for a week was to take the little kid of nine essences home with me. And, um, you know, if I do anything, I do it really big, like really big. So <laughs> those nine essences, plus, you know, maybe the couple dozen I'd made, maybe, maybe three or four dozen even, uh, even though I, I, I 
discontinued use of some that just didn't didn't seem like the right fit for me um, has now turned into like hundreds of little dropper bottles all over the place. You can see all the things that are off off frame. You would get it. Um, uh, every every training I could launch myself into, I just I wanted to learn it all. Um, Christopher Pensack teaches a great class in baneful flower essences mm -hmm. and does a lot of work with plant spirits anyway. So, yeah. um, you know, that was kind of my, my little nudge internally came from the fact that there were witchy people already doing this yeah. and that there must be a place for it. Not just in like a marketing kind of thing. Like obviously publishing is a business. You got to sell books. Yeah. So I got to convince someone whose business it is to make books and sell books that this one will sell. But I think the, the profound love and respect that witchy people of many flavors and titles have for the plant kingdom shows that uh, a book like this is maybe going to meet some needs that we don't see by bridging the more, the more metaphysical use of flower essences with the witchy stuff. And sometimes the correlations are just incredible. Like you look at the traditional lore about yarrow and then you look at its medicinal properties and then you look at how it is used as a flower essence and it's like a one for one for one parallel yeah. with ideas of like protection and boundaries mm -hmm. it just just perfect and and you know that's one of one of a hundred plants in the book so you know my, my goal was to try to find as many of these correspondences from tradition to tradition as possible and make a book that was a how-to guide for making essences, using essences, blending and prescribing essences, and then using them for the witchy things, like infusing incense with flower essences, mm. using them for dressing candles, um, adding them to like the, the sacraments of the craft, like yeah. the, the great rite or calling the quarters or, yes. or whatever else we might be doing. There, there are applications for these tools. And, and I'm hoping that people won't, won't just look at this as a flower essence book but we'll look at it as an extension of the lore of like magical herbalism as a whole. Like Absolutely. there's a lot of that here and it's, it's taking the old age and the new age and putting them together. And I, I like straddling those two things. And even though sometimes there's a lot of cognitive dissonance because I don't always agree. I like finding the connection just like I do with rocks. So why not do it with plants too? I, I think that's absolutely <clears throat> brilliant. I'm so looking forward to that book. Um, and, and yeah, it's not just, the old and the new, but the fact that your take on everything brings in the science, you know, I think that is very unique and it gives it, it gives it a different layer of stability. This isn't some guy's idea. It's, well, this is the working that I've done in my own spiritual path, working with these, these flower essences. And there's also science to back this up, just like with your, with, with crystals and, and, uh, you know, the geology background and all of that. It's so well-rounded, uh, Nicholas, your work is so well-rounded. It speaks to so many people on so, so many different levels. Um, and you really are, you're really able to reach people in the witchcraft community, in the metaphysical community, and then people that are just learning, um, and you've got great information. So I, I encourage everyone to get your crystal basics book and, and get their foundational knowledge. And now with this flower essence, it sounds like again, another foundational book for people who want to learn. And that just means, uh, your idea of being an educator and everything coming back down to that education. Well, you've succeeded my friend. Um, cause that is, that is absolutely what comes through in your work. 
Okay, one more question with the wonderful, amazing uh, Nicholas Pearson. At the end of every show, I ask my guests, um, if you could have me as a kitchen witch make any meal for you, what would that magical meal be and why? And then I will come up with that recipe and I will post it with your show notes. So it would be a recipe inspired by you. Oh, I love this idea. Um, so one of my favorite foodstuffs on earth is the fig. And um, I haven't had a good fig in years because of the way agriculture is. And one of my greatest guilty pleasures is fig on pizza. That is not a guilty pleasure. In my fabulous new cookbook, A Kitchen Witch's Guide to Love and Romance, I have a fig and truffle pizza. Well, then it's no wonder we're going to be besties. Are we? Are we going to be best friends? I'm. Gonna, no, do you eat meat? You meat eater? I don't. You don't. So I will come up with this recipe because it has a prosciutto on it. So I will come up with a recipe for this fig pizza for you, my friend that I will post in the show notes and then you can make it and I can make it. We can make it together and we can eat it on camera together. Oh, sign me up. It's going to happen, but only if you promise to watch A Little Mermaid with me. Uh, Done. Done. I'm so in love with that mug. I can't even. Okay. Uh, So fig pizza for my friend, Nicholas. Well, thank you, Don. Thank you so much. Oh, that's going to be delicious. I cannot thank you enough for being with me today. I've enjoyed this conversation so much. You are simply delightful. Um, Let everyone know where they can find you online. If they want to buy books, if they want to follow you, if they'd like to take some of your online classes, where can we find you? So, well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, For anyone who wants to connect, the, the most likely handle that you'll find me at is The Luminous Pearl, whether that's Instagram or TikTok or Facebook. My website accordingly is theluminouspearl.com. That's going to be getting an overhaul soon so I can get all of my events consolidated to one spot. Um, I'll be very hopefully launching a newsletter soon. I'm, I'm paying for the service, so i got to start using it. <laughs> yes. so that's my Capricorn in me. Yes. Um, so I do plenty of monthly events. I do a free online Reiki share every month. Um, I do this kind of masterclass series on the monoliths or I pick a different stone. Yeah. We, and we'll have, we'll have all of your information in the show notes. So we'll put up all of your links and everything. Everyone will be able to find you. Um, Nicholas Pearson. Wow. Um, you blew my mind a little bit today and uh, I'm going to go through all of my crystals and reconnect with them because uh, it needs to happen. And I'm definitely going to make sure that I have all of my citrine. I'm just going to like stuff my bra and my pockets with it whenever I have to interact with family members. So thank you for that tip. <laughs> um, you are just absolutely delightful. Thank you so much for being here. Um, really looking forward to the book. And until next time, everyone, I wish you many blessings and so much gratitude. Thank you so much. 